I'm going to go fast tonight because I do have uh, our conference. But I do think it's kind of a fascinating subject we're going to talk about tonight. Sometimes God is at work even in the words of those who do not believe in him. I'll give you an example. Many of you uh, know Stephen Hawking, the very well-known theoretical physicist, passed away some time ago. And his last book has, uh, has just recently been released. And in that last book, entitled Brief Answers to the Big Questions, he deals with 10 big questions. And I'm not going to get into all of the questions, but he talks about colonizing planets and artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, uh, something called the theory of everything, which he says in the next 1,000 years, there is a 50-50 chance that man will develop a theory of everything which will explain everything. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, Brexit, he thinks is bad. Uh, He talks about uh, the need to educate and develop more scientists and engineers. Talks about climate change. Talks about the issue, did Americans really go to the moon back in 1969? Uh, Talks about the fact that we should research time travel. But the thing I want to talk about is the very last subject that he approached and addressed And that is, he stated that he believed there is no God. The scripture addresses that opinion in Psalm 53 and the very first part of verse 1. And I'll just read it. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, I, I shared with you that sometimes God uses even the words, and I say sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes God uses even the words of those who deny him to bring glory to himself. And I'll show you what I mean in just a moment. Um, The summary of the 10th question, the question about God's existence, uh, is given in the English newspaper, The Sun, and I'm going to read, this is Verbatim, I'm just reading from the newspaper. It's very short. It won't take but just a moment. The late professor was an esteemed scholar and so spent much of his time thinking about the world's biggest problems. And when it comes to religion, it is no surprise that Professor Hawking had plenty of opinions. Do I have faith? We are each free to believe what we want. And it's my view, Hawkins speaking, it's my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven and afterlife either. I believe that an afterlife is just wishful thinking. There is no reliable evidence for it, and it flies in the face of everything we know in science. Now listen carefully to the final words Hawking shares. I think that when we die, we return to dust. 
But there's a sense in which we live on in our influence, in our genes that we pass on to our children. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that, I am extremely grateful. As I said, the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Stephen Hawking is said to have been both a genius and an atheist. And... um, He's no doubt a very clever man. But notice again what he said. I want to talk about those last few sentences. I think that when we die, we return to dust, but there's a sense in which we live on in our influence and in our genes that we pass on to our children. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Three quick observations about the remarks of this man who according to many, was one of the most intelligent men to ever live. Number one, he said, when we die, we return to dust. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It's because the concept arises from the Bible itself. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then after the fall, God said to Adam, the first man, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because you were taken from it, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 5, For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him, that is, remember the Lord, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. It's ironic that Hawking uses a biblical concept to frame his argument against biblical truth. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The second thing I'd draw your attention to is Hawking said, we have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. Did you catch that? Now, this is one of the smartest men to ever live. And and I'm not not belittling him. He's dead now. But I'm just simply saying, here's a man who is brilliant and he is an avowed, or was, an avowed atheist and he calls on us to appreciate the grand design of the universe. But doesn't design demand a designer? Can something be designed without a designer? Isn't design itself a creative expression? Notice that Hawking's also calls the universe design a, a grand design. It's not just merely a design, it's a grand design. How does evolution or the Big Bang fulfill the description of a grand design? How can the design be both random and grand at the same time? After all, wouldn't Darwin simply call us fancy monkeys? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, 
if we are basically evolved from monkeys, then aren't we really just fancy monkeys? Kind of monkeys that were better than the other monkeys? Is that a grand design? Is it a grand design that we're fancy monkeys? I don't think so. Does intricate design result from something random? The complexity of the universe and life demands what? An intelligent creator God. Listen to the testimony of Scripture, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things... I'm sorry, let me start that again. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, God spoke, as the Latin ex nihilo, he spoke something where there was nothing before. Only a grand creator can perform that kind of design. Uh, Revelation chapter 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Romans 1.20, reading from the New Living Translation, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. In other words, the creation is intricate and complex because God himself is intricate and complex. Hebrews 3, 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You know, did you even know that verse in the Bible? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, The builder of all things is God. He is the very designer that created this grand design. And finally, Psalm 139, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And so Hawkins talks about us being returning to dust and really evidently unaware that he's simply reflecting somewhere in the back of his mind that that seed was planted somewhere maybe in, in, his, in his growing up or in his reading. He, he, he saw that. It stuck in his mind, and yet it is the very way of God himself. And, and then he, he looked and he thought, well, I'm just so thankful as I finish my life for the grand design, and yet he thinks that this grand design came randomly out of chaos. And the third thing that I couldn't help but note is that Hawking writes... For that, that is the grand design of the universe. For the grand design of the universe, I am extremely grateful. To whom is Hawking grateful? To whom does he offer thanks? Can thanksgiving be offered to an inanimate, an inanimate, excuse me, object? Doesn't our urge to offer thanksgiving speak to our internal conviction? that there is indeed a God to receive that thanksgiving. Psalm 100, we learned this when we were in school. Shout, I'm talking about Sunday school. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. 
Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us. And not we ourselves. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. Come before him with joyful singing. With thanksgiving. The psalmist goes on to write, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness endures to all generations. Recently, I I told you in, in a couple of messages that there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are looking for a reason to believe. We're like that. And those who are looking for a reason not to believe. Mr. Hawking was like that. We're looking for a reason to believe, but there are many, many like Professor Hawking looking for a reason not to believe. In that group of those looking for a reason not to believe are a great number of modern men and women who have attempted to place God in the witness box and to demand that he offer evidence for his own existence. But how many of us have paused to consider, and this is something the world never considers, I am yet to hear an atheist talk about what I'm about to close with this evening. We always hear the atheist point to this or that and say, look, see, I told you there cannot be a God. But the atheist never does what the scientist does. See, the scientist, when scientists are looking at something, the scientist is saying, well, let me look for the reasons that this is true. But the scientist, or false, but the scientist does something else. The scientist looks and says, let me think about the implications of if this theory or this idea is false. People in science and engineering, we always think about that. Engineers always think, well, what's going to happen if this isn't true? What's going to happen if this fails? What's going to happen if our theory is amiss? How many times have you heard someone consider the implication That God doesn't exist. In other words, if there is no God, how would that change our lives? Well, first it would change, have changed Mr. Hawkins' life. He wouldn't have the dust illustration to depend upon. And it would have been kind of pointless to be thankful. Because there would be no one to give thanks to. But let me share with you these things as we close. If there is no God, If Hawking is right, and we know he's not, and now he knows he's not, but if there is no God, then we can say a number of things. We can say, first off, there is no meaning or purpose in life. There is no God. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no reason for living. We are just here by accident. It's just something that happened. Furthermore, There really isn't any moral law, is there? 
right and wrong or what we decide for it to be. And so you can have a guy down the street who's got one set of values and a guy over here that's got another set of values. And there really is no right or wrong. There is no moral law. And we are self-righteous to, to say there is, if there is no God. If there's no God, there's no meaning or purpose in life. There's no moral law. There's no justice. If you can get away with it, you get away with it. And all those people who have taken someone's life and they've been able to get through life without being found out, they will die and never will justice be done. Those who have died at the hands of some murderous individual, they will never have justice if there is no God. If there is no God, there is no eternal life. If there is no God, there's no explanation for our existence or the universe. If there is no God, there is no love in its truest sense. For the Bible says that God is love. And, and no wonder, you know, things are coming apart. You know, if, there, if you believe there's no God, then there really is no basis for love. And, and so, you know, you just kind of take care of yourself and look out for number one. If there is no God, there is no salvation. If there is no God, there is no peace. If there is no God, there is no lasting joy. If there is no God, there is no reason to believe. And finally, if there is no God, there is no hope. No hope. I am so thankful that my God is real. I am so thankful that he is engaged in this world and he cares about me. I am so thankful that when they put me on my final bed, the bed on which I will die, that I will not die alone. I am so thankful that there is a God who takes an interest in me and who I am. I am so thankful that I have hope. I am so thankful that all the things that I mentioned, if there is no God, then there can be no meaning or purpose or moral law or justice or eternal life or explanations for the existence of the universe or love or salvation or peace or joy or faith. Or I'm so thankful that I do have those things because there is a God. An anonymous individual once asked, why is the atheist main target always Jesus of Nazareth? And never Buddha, never Confucius, never Mohammed. Why is it the atheist never goes out to attack Mohammed? Why is the atheist never worried about Buddha? Or why is he never worried about Confucius? Why, why is the atheist only seen fixated on Jesus? And I think the reason is the atheist always makes the triune God his target. Because he's trying his best to quiet the doubts in his own heart that he has missed out on the greatest hope in life. I think that's why. Because somewhere in the depths of the atheist's heart is that nagging doubt. What if I am wrong? See, he won't express it. He, he doesn't ask the question we asked just a moment ago. If there is no God, then what are the implications? He didn't ask that question aloud, but he asked it in his heart. He asked it in his heart. 
And that's why Jesus is always the target. Because in the atheist's heart, the atheist knows Jesus is really the only reasonable possibility. And yet, for whatever reasons, he chooses or she chooses not to believe. I think I've told you that I've become a little addicted to a rerun. And I've, I've watched almost all the episodes. And uh, some of you who remember probably seeing it, it's a, it's a, it's a thing about um, a guy that has some psychiatric issues and he's obsessive compulsive and his name is Monk, Adrian Monk. And he goes around solving all these crimes. And, 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 and it's a mystery and we can't solve it. And we're watching the amazing Adrian Monk as he goes through and he makes his, he makes his, his examinations. And he finds these incredibly you know, obscure little pieces of evidence. And he puts the puzzle together. And we're trying our best to figure out if we can beat him to it. And then he has this line where after he's gotten a little bit of evidence, there's a wry smile that comes to his face. And he turns to the people in the police department that he's assisting. Or he turns to his assistant and he simply says, he's the man. Because he's figured it out. He knows what happens. And when it comes to Jesus, I really think in some sense the atheist suspects he's the man. And thankfully because of the Holy Spirit, you know and I know he's the man. He's not the one who committed some atrocious crime. Instead, he's the one who was falsely accused of an atrocious crime and who went to the cross and died for us that we might have eternal life. And one day, though we haven't seen him, we will see him. And we'll be able to look at him and say with that smile on our face, yes, Jesus, he's the man, the God-man, the hope for our eternal life and the reason for life itself. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so